Welcome to the One Hope Church podcast, where we believe Jesus is our one hope for a better life and a better world. We hope this message encourages you. Good morning, everybody that got an extra hour of sleep and doesn't have the flu. We're glad that you've made it. You've made it so far. Let's, let's cross our fingers. May the, may the power be in our favor that we all don't get sick. Flu is in my house this week. I managed to escape it, and hopefully it leaves our house and never comes back again but we're praying for all those that are sick we're also praying if you're curious I'm not Scott my name is Bradley and I serve as the worship pastor here and Scott our lead pastor is in Israel and they actually might be watching if they are watching we'll we'll wave to them and tell them hello in Israel um just to so we're clear I'm experiencing my wife and I were Carla and I were talking about this we're actually experiencing a little bit of like wish we were there missing out syndrome or whatever you call that because we really do wish that we were in Israel seeing the Holy Land tour with all those folks from One Hope that are there now. And so um, they are having a great time. They've been to Nazareth, the Sea of Galilee. They, they're just seeing all the sights and scriptures really coming alive for them. So we're excited that they're there. And they'll be back later this week, and Scott will be back with us. Uh, last night, our, our team that went to Guatemala, if we have any Guatemala folks that came to the early service, way to go, you guys. I'm proud of y'all. Our team from Guatemala got back last night, and they are here today. We're going to hear lots of stories, see lots of pictures and video. If you haven't already seen some stuff posted on Facebook, you'll see a lot of that in the future as well. So, good morning. I'm so glad that you're here. Last week, Scott finished a series, a seven-week series, on the questions that Jesus asked. Now, recorded in the scriptures, there are over 300 questions that Jesus asked. We did not cover all 300. I think there's 307 or 309. Some Bible scholar, you may be able to correct me. We only covered seven of those questions. So if you missed any of those last seven weeks of teachings, you can go online, you can go on the Church Center app, you can go on Facebook or YouTube and catch up on any of that. So today, I thought it would be cool if we flipped the script, right? We went through seven weeks of Jesus asking questions, questions to disciples, questions to those people that he healed, even questions to us as believers, as followers of Christ today. So today we're going to flip that script, and we're going to talk about questions that we ask, questions that we ask, because we all know that we are all very inquisitive creatures, right? We all have lots of questions. If you are a parent, or you have been a parent, or you are a teacher or an aunt or an uncle, or you've just been around small children, you know that the younger we are, the more inquisitive we are. Does anybody know what the number one question that children ask? Well, let me phrase it this way. Do you know what the question starts with? That, huh? Why? The question of why. Why is the most frequent question that children ask? I don't know why, but I do know that after every answer that we give them, they then respond with why. But there's good news. As parents, we have a, a few canned answers that we like to give our children. Okay, let me, let me just illustrate, so bear with me. I'm going to give you some scenarios, and I'm going to give you the answer that you should give to your children in order to maybe avoid the question of of why over and over get into the what I would call the why cycle it's like a loop a vicious loop that just keeps going and going and going all right so here's the first one if your kid comes up to you and asks, can we go to the park you have some responses you can either say yes no or maybe or because I said so I would say just say yes because then 
They don't ask any more questions. You just go to the park. It's done, all right? What about the next one? Can I have a dessert? Yes, yeah, you sure? Yeah, you can say yes. I would say probably no, and they would say why, and you would say, well, because we haven't had dinner yet, and they would say why, and they would say because we haven't cooked it yet, and they would say why, and so well, we just walked in the door from school, and they would say why, and you say just no because I said so. Then, then hopefully you're you're in with it. That's it. That's that's the end of it. The next question we get this one a lot at my house. Can I have a snack? Like, well, you just asked for a dessert. And I said, no. But now, can I have a snack? I walk in the door from school, can I have a snack? Now, you can say yes if you're nice. You can say no if you know that supper is, is on the way. Or you can say uh, later. But most of the time, you're just going to say no. Or they're going to say why. And you're going to say because I said so. And then the loop is ended with any luck. But there is one more question and response. That's, let me tell you, it's vital. It's vital. It's vital, especially for dads, especially for, for me. It's vital. Okay, I'm going to give you a scenario, and I'm going to tell you the answer to keep the conversation quick and over and move on. Okay, the question. You ready? Hey, Dad, where do babies come from? <laughs> go ask your mom. <laughs> and then it's, then it's done. You just say, go ask your mom. So, dads, we have responses. Yes, no, because I said so. And go ask your mom. Moms, you're just out of luck. You just have yes, no, and because I said so. But regardless, we are truly inquisitive beings. Now, we're just kind of having some fun this morning. But imagine, imagine what it's like if all of us have so many questions day in and day out that we ask each other, that our kids ask us, that we ask our children, that we ask God. Imagine how many questions that our Father in heaven, creator of the universe, how many questions he is inundated with day after day after day after day after day. We're truly inquisitive beings. And the older that we get, our questions begin to evolve. To evolve. We ask different questions the older that we get because we grow in knowledge, we, we grow in maturity, we, we grow in wisdom, we grow in understanding. And our questions, they begin to change. When we're kids, we like to ask things like, can I have a snack? Do I have to take a nap? When we're adults, when we have kids, we try and ask our kids to leave us alone so we can take a nap. And then, don't tell anybody I said this, when they're asleep, we steal all of their snacks. Especially if they're oatmeal pies or nutty bars. Those are my favorite things. But the older that we get, we don't ask about naps and snacks. We do those things whenever we have a chance. But still, our questions change because our context changes. Our frame of reference in the world changes. We grow up. We mature. And so our questions move to more bigger, more life-altering questions. Questions like, where should I go to college? What should I major in? Or in this season that we're in hey what time is kickoff or questions like will you marry me or questions like who gives this bride to be married or the most pivotal question at least in my home maybe in your home too this is the most pivotal question that we ask and what i think she knows what's for supper 
That's the most pivotal question in our life. That's the most pressing question in my life from day to day. It's the most pressing question in my children's life from day to day. Hey, what's, what's for supper? And mom just says, go away and leave me alone. I will tell you when it's on the table. But, but today, our questions, they've changed. And our questions, just like in life, our questions to God change. When we're young, we tend to ask God questions like, why is the grass green? What happened to the dinosaurs? But the older that we get, when our frame of reference changes, our questions for God change. They become more pressing, more life-altering questions. Questions like, why am I here? What's heaven really like? What's in my future? Is God real? Is Jesus truly the Son of God? These are all questions that we begin to ask God and to ponder and to wonder ourselves. So my question for you today, just think about this for just a moment. What's the one question that you would ask God? You're standing face to face with the creator of the universe. What question would you ask God? Think about that for a moment. Now, for some of you, it may still be questions about dinosaurs and why the grass is green. And there's no judgment. If that's your question, that's fine. But I think for a lot of us, probably most of us, our questions begin to change and our attention turns to ironically the same question that our children ask us every single day no not what's for dinner but the question of why our children ask us this question and the older we get that is our most pressing question to our father in heaven the question of why 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 me why this? God, why? Why now? And you can fill in the blank. Why cancer? Why divorce? Why relational difficulty? Why? Why financial ruin? Why loss of job? Why sickness? Why pain? Why suffering? That's the question that we ask so often. It's the question of suffering. We ask God why. In most cases, our questions to God are questions about suffering. And those questions, they open the door to doubt and to fear, doubt. Doubt that God truly cares for us, fear of the future, doubt that God hears us when we cry out to him, fear that God has left us here alone to fend for ourselves in this troubled, evil world but we have questions. And so the challenge, the challenge for us today, for all of us, for me, for you, if you're watching online, for all of us today, the challenge is this, is to find encouragement, to find hope, hope that we can find in Scripture today, that there's truth found in Scripture that will guide us in our most pressing questions in asking God, why? Why do we suffer? That's a big question. That's a big question. And so I hope today, I hope today that we find some encouragement. I hope that today that we leave encouraged so that maybe, maybe our suffering doesn't lead to us losing hope, doesn't lead to us losing faith, doesn't lead to us losing heart. That's my hope. That we hold on and we wrestle with Scripture. And we decide to hold on to hope that we have in Jesus. Amen?
In the Old Testament, there is a man named Job. And we're going to look at a little bit of scripture today in Job and then again also in 2 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, you can open that Bible if you're looking for the book of Job. If you'll open that Bible to the very center, you'll likely be in the book of Psalms. Then go back one book and you'll be in the book of Job. And go to the very beginning of Job, Job chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you don't have one and you want to take that one with you, please Take that one with you and let God's word begin to change your life every day. But we're going to start today reading in Job chapter 1, verse 1, where we learn a little bit about the life of Job. And it says this, it'll also be on the screen. In the land of Uts there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Now, very clearly from Job chapter 1, we see that Job was a pretty blessed man. He had built quite the life for himself. He trusted and obeyed the Father. He walked blameless in sight of the Lord. He offered sacrifices when he felt necessary on behalf of his family. Job was a pretty upstanding citizen, if I do say so. But over the next few sections, and if you've read or heard or been around church long enough, you've heard, surely, this story of Job. Over the next few sections of Job, we find that everything that he had built is taken away from him. All the livestock, dead or taken. His children died. And yet, we read, yet Job continued to praise the Lord. And at the end of chapter 1, in verse 22, it says this, In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In all of this, Job did not sin in charging God with wrongdoing. In fact, in chapter 2, God says of Job that he is blameless, that he maintains integrity, that there is no one like him. But then, then God continues to allow the suffering of Job. This time, it gets worse with painful sores from the bottom of his feet to the tops of his head. And in the Hebrew, this would really translate more of like boils. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, a picture of suffering that says this, Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and he scraped himself as he sat among the ashes. Just picture that. Job, an upstanding, righteous man, sitting in the ashes of the life that he had worked so hard to build. All of it crumbled around him. And he finds nothing around him but a piece of broken pottery to sit and scrape the sores from his body. Job, even a righteous man, had reason to question God. And he does. In Job chapter 7, verse 20, Job asked God very courageously, Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? Says Job. Now, there's a lot that we could unpack 
about the life of Job. We could spend a whole series in this book, but I want to take just a second before we move on to 2 Corinthians. I want to take a moment and I want to bring to our attention a couple of things about Job's questioning of God that I think in turn shed some light on our questioning of God. Right? I get it. You get it. I understand why Job wants to know why. I would want to know why as well. But so often, like Job, we do these two things that change the way we question God. Like Job, in our questions, we question the why we put the ways of God on trial. We put the ways of God on trial. Listen, Job begins with questions directed at God that go something like this. In chapter 3, he says, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Or in chapter 7 that we, verse, that we just read, Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? It's clear from the text that Job is blameless, righteous. God calls him a man of integrity. So it can't be that Job is on trial in his suffering. It can't be that that he is guilty in this. But what is clear is that through his questions, that he is really questioning the way that God works. If we strip all of this down, take everything apart on this question, Job is asking God why, but what he's really doing, he's trying to figure out how God works. And we do that too. When we ask God why, why we deserve this, why we deserve that, we're not asking God why at all. What we're really doing, we're saying, what kind of God are you that you would allow this to happen to me? We put the ways of God on trial through all of Job's difficult circumstances, through his suffering, through his pain, and through his struggle. He arrives at a place where rightfully so he might question God. But what Job does is something entirely different, is he puts the ways of God on trial. But that's not all. That's not the only thing that he does in his questioning of God. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Like Job, in our questions, in our questions to God, we show a lack of context. We show a lack of context. At the end of this story, in Job chapter 38, God speaks up to Job. Finally, God is going to answer the questions of God. Now, I picture this similar to a courtroom drama or your favorite courtroom case movie, whatever it is, Few Good Men, however you want to talk about it, whatever. I picture God is sort of this, he's about to cross-examine Job, right? He takes a sip of water, loosens his collar, takes a deep breath, and he turns around and he says this in Job 38 verse 2, Who is this? that obscures my plans with words without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. I don't ever want to be that guy that God says that to. And then, then he says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, Job. Surely you know. Now, Job continue, or God continues his cross-examination of Job, but we, we get the point, and we often do the same thing. We assume that we know the ways in which God works. 
the ways in which the world works, the justice of God compared to the mercy of God, that good things happen to good people, that bad things happen to bad people. It's called the retribution principle, that the righteous will prosper and the, suffer, and the evil will suffer. But deep down, we know that that's not how the world works. It's not how the world works. We will suffer, righteous or not, blameless and upright and full of integrity or not. We will suffer. And so likewise, we will also question. So there must be a way. There must be a way for us to question wisely, to suffer well, or to suffer sacramentally. There must be a way for us, a way to question without putting the ways of God on trial, a way for us to question even when we lack context. You could say it this way. We could ask this question. How do we wonder why without wandering away? How do we wonder why? without wandering away. But the truth is, is that we will suffer. We will question. Jesus makes it clear in John 16. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. James, the brother of Jesus, in his letter in the book of James, he says this, take heart. I'm sorry, he says this, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. It's clear all through Scripture that the righteous will suffer. Good or not, we will suffer. Suffering is a part of the world. And the sooner we come to grips with suffering and pain in the world, the sooner we will begin to see a way to suffer well. And because of our suffering and because of our questions, there are two things I want to point out to us today that will help us to question and to suffer well. Number one, we have to choose to trust the promise. And then number two, we have to choose to embrace the purpose. Say that with me. We have to choose to trust the promise. We have to choose to embrace the purpose. We want to we meditate on those two things today. We want to choose to trust the promise and choose to embrace the purpose. In our suffering... And subsequent questioning, if we will look close enough, we will see the promise of God. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote letter after letter to churches all over the Mediterranean basin, he writes two letters to Christians in a city called Corinth. We have these letters in the Bible. They're called 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, he spends a good bit of time talking about suffering, about pain, about difficult experiences. And so in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes these words in verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. The promise of the promise of God is that in the midst of suffering and pain, that he is, in fact, with us. With us to bring comfort, with us to bring peace, with us to bring strength. 
But so often we make this mistake. So often in our prayers to God, we don't pray for comfort. We don't pray for that promise. Instead, what we do is we don't pray for comfort in, we pray for relief from. And you can fill in the blank. We don't pray for comfort in our pain, we pray for relief from our pain. We don't pray for perseverance through our struggle, we pray for removal of our struggle. That's what we do. So often, that is the way that we pray. And this idea of suffering, it's not new for you and for me. It was certainly well aware for the the Christians in the first century. Certainly, Paul knew what it was like to suffer. He experienced more pain and more hardship than you and I can imagine. And he gives us a glimpse into that. If we move into chapter 11, he writes these words beginning in verse 23. I have worked much harder been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, in danger from false believers. Shall I continue? I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked. And besides everything else, and you're like, there's more? There's more. I face daily pressure of my concern for all churches, which means I face daily pressure for my concern for all of you. All of you Christians in Corinth, I face daily pressure because I care about you. So all of these things, I suffer. Paul gets it. If anyone in Scripture should be asking God why, it's Paul. He states a pretty strong case in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But he understands He trusts the promise. He understands that God is the God of all comfort. And because Paul remembers the experiences of the past and he saw God deliver him, and because Paul trusts that God will deliver him in the future circumstances that he has, he has hope in his present suffering. Because of the past, because of the present, he has hope in the present. God is a God of all comfort. He's a God of all comfort. And so Paul continues to write, not to boast in his strength, but in the strength of God, because Paul isn't done suffering. He moves on. And in verse 7, he says this, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Now, we don't know what this ailment was, this physical ailment that was given to Paul. We just know this, that three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults, hardships, persecution, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Paul gives us this picture of what trusting in the promise looks like. Because we can choose to read these words of Paul and be discouraged. We can. It's Paul. Right? We can read these words. I can never live up to the example that Paul gives. I can never trust God's promise like that. To compare ourselves to Paul, we could easily begin to lose heart and lose hope and to lose faith. To allow our wondering to lead to wandering away. But the reality is this, is that Paul is reminding us that when we embrace our inability, that we begin to experience God's ability. It's only that. It's only in that. That when we begin to trust in the promise of God's comfort, then we begin to experience the power of his presence. It's in, it's in the time that we begin to trust in his comfort that we experience his presence but we have to trust the promise of God's comfort we have to trust the promise there's a passage of scripture that so often we take out of context in this passage of scripture it's actually talking about temptation that God will give you temptation yes but God will always make a way out of temptation and so when it comes to suffering we will say things like oh God won't give you more than you can handle can I tell you, God will give you more than you can handle. But there's good news. God won't give you more than he can handle. He will give you more than you can handle, but it will force you to lean on him, to put your hope in him, because he won't give you more than he can handle. But we have to choose to trust the promise. To trust the promise that there is comfort in our pain, that God is made strong in our weakness. We have to choose to embrace the purpose. We have to embrace the purpose that in the midst of our despair and defeat, our, our sorrow and our suffering, that we can still choose to trust and embrace the purpose that God has for us. And if we flip back to chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians 11. And let's revisit that passage that we read earlier. In verse 3 it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. But it goes on. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Paul puts a communal spin on our suffering. Now, surely there are other things that our suffering may produce. It may bring with it sanctification. It may bring with it purification. It may bring with it a renewed love for God that we've never experienced. But one thing we can know for certain, that if we, if we can embrace this holy purpose of our pain, if we can embrace this communal purpose of our suffering, right? That he writes, so that we might comfort others with the same comfort that we ourselves receive from God. 
If we can wrap our hearts and our minds around this purpose of our pain, it will give us purpose in the world. Each time we walk through suffering and hardship and trouble, God equips us so that we are able to comfort others just as he comforts us. But there's a catch, a small catch, small but. Comfort does not equal fixing. Let me me say it again, it's important. Comfort does not equal fixing. Let me explain. Comfort is consolation. Comfort is compassion. When, when my wife Carla brings to me a problem, whether it's a problem at school or work or home or whatever it may be, oftentimes she is not coming to me to fix the problem. Now, for me, that's hard because I like to fix problems. She's laughing because she knows that it's true. And there are times that she will look at me and say, shut up and just listen. I don't need you to fix the problem. I need you to comfort me, to encourage me, to show me some compassion. Comfort is not fixing. And so we take that knowledge and we apply it to suffering and we say that God is not always here to fix our problems, but to comfort us so that we can comfort others with the same comfort that we ourselves receive from God. And if we can do those things, if we can trust in the promise, if we can embrace the purpose, then really our questions of why God turn into something different entirely. It's really going to become more about how. How can I trust in the promise? How, God, can I embrace the purpose? In the middle of great suffering, I'm going to choose to trust in the promise and embrace the purpose. So how? How how do I do those two things? You're like, Bradley, this is all fine and good, but you, you can't imagine. You can't imagine the pain and the suffering that I'm dealing with, the heartache, the sorrow, the despair, the loss of family members, the loss of relationships, the loss of jobs, the loss of friendship and community. You can't imagine the suffering that I'm feeling, the aloneness that I'm feeling. You're right. I can't. I can't begin to know what all of the pain and suffering that we all go through is like. I just know one thing, that in order to gain understanding, to trust in the promise and embrace the purpose that God has for us, we have to do one thing. We have to recalibrate our lives around Jesus. Like we talked about earlier, the older we get, our frame of reference changes for the questions that we ask. We have to change our frame of reference around Jesus because he's the only one that knows the suffering and the pain. We have to change our frame of reference. And Paul tells us in verse 10, he has delivered us from such deadly peril. He, Jesus, and he will deliver us again. And then he writes this part. I love this verse. It says, on him, on Jesus, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. On him, on Jesus, we have set our hope 
to trust in the promise of Jesus, to embrace the purpose. We have to hold on tight to the hope that we have in him. We have to recalibrate, reframe our reference and put Jesus in the center. Jesus, Jesus for the joy set before him. He, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And it says in Hebrews, consider him. Consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The author of Hebrews is imploring us to consider Jesus, to recalibrate around Jesus. Why? Because he trusted the promise. Jesus embraced the purpose. I am not familiar with the pain and suffering of the world, but Jesus is all too familiar with the pain and the suffering of the world. He's also very familiar with the questions of why. In Matthew 27, Jesus is hanging on the cross, nails in his hands and in his feet, a crown of thorns on his head, blood streaming down his body, and he says these words, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Your own son. Your own son. And in the midst of great suffering and great pain, Jesus trusts in the promise of his father. He chose to embrace the purpose of God. That through him, through his sacrifice, through his suffering, we might have comfort so that through him, through his suffering, through his pain, we might be able to comfort others with the same comfort we ourselves receive from God. He trusted the promise. He embraced the purpose. So when we ask why and we don't get a response, we accept the comfort and we trust the promise, and we embrace the purpose so that we can give comfort to others. C.S. Lewis wrote these words. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain, pain insists upon being attended to. And then he says this, God whispers in our pain. But God shouts in our suffering. He whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pains. I believe that right now, that God is doing everything he can to shout to us in our questions of why. And he's shouting right now, I can bring you comfort. Just hold on to hope in me because my power is made perfect in weakness. Trust me. Believe in me. Believe in my promise. Trust and embrace my purpose and hold on to the hope that you have in me and trust me for deliverance. So today as we 
as we close and we prepare our hearts to worship. Can you just, can we stand together? I want you to recognize a couple of things. First, I want, I want you to recognize that all over the room right now, that there are individuals, there are families, there are people that have a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And it, it might be sickness, it might be relationships, it might be the loss of family, it might be related to a job, related to finances, all over the room, there is great suffering and great pain. Which means that there are a lot of people in this room and watching online too that need our comfort. They need Jesus' comfort, but right now they can also receive comfort from a community of believers that loves them and wants the best for them and wants them to know that they are for them. And number two, there are people in the room that are equipped to give that comfort. There are people right now in the room that are ready and willing to comfort those who need comfort. And so as we pray, it, it might be, they might be next to you, they might be around you, they might need to come to the altar, you might need to use your chair as an altar, but if you need the comfort that only God and community can bring, then would you just, would you allow this church to give you comfort, the same comfort that we ourselves receive from God? And if you are ready to give comfort, to give compassion, not to fix, but to give compassion and to show empathy and to console, maybe that is the message that God is bringing you today. And so, Father, right now, all over the room, God, the needs, they are great. But Jesus, we know that your comfort is greater. And right now, the suffering may be great, but God, we know that your love is greater. And so, Father, we ask right now in these moments, right now in these moments, Would you comfort us? And would you allow us to bring comfort to those around us that need, that need you? And may we remember that it is through your sacrifice and through your suffering that we are enabled to give comfort and receive comfort from you, Jesus. So would you move in our hearts? Would you move through our hands and through our prayers this morning? And may we collectively, may we collectively run towards you, Father, for comfort as we worship today, Jesus. In your name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from One Hope Church. If you liked this message and would like to hear more, check out our website at OurOneHope.com for message archives, service times, and more information on how you can get connected. Thanks again for listening, and we hope to see you soon.